In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Um, God willing, today we're going to finish up the fifth commandment and then start on the sixth commandment. The fifth commandment we've been discussing has been um, honor your father and mother. And we've been speaking up until now um, a lot about the responsibility of the children to the parents in the terms of honoring them. Um, but I want to speak a little bit about um, the parents' responsibility to the children as well as some of the limits of this commandment. What do we mean when we say honor your father and mother? So as far as the parents' responsibilities to the children, um, it is their responsibility to bring them up in the fear of the Lord, meaning God places children in homes um, and, and he, he, <coughs> he calls the parents to be good parents, right? And what does it mean to be a good parent? A lot of times parents, the, the focus is on, you know, providing a good home, uh, food, water, education, um, and, and our focus a lot of times uh, is on these things, which of course these things are very important. But sometimes we neglect the raising of our children and the fear of God, meaning what are the spiritual practices that I'm going to instill in my children from a young age, bringing them to church, right? Being a good uh, like example in terms of my own spiritual life so that they would see me and imitate what it is that I'm doing, encouraging them to read the Bible, to pray, to fast, um, actually, one of the questions that comes up a lot during the time of the great fast is uh, about the children. How should my children fast? And a lot of times um, we feel like, oh, well, if I ask my children to fast from a young age, it's going to be a burden on them or they're going to complain and they don't want this. But actually, this is an opportunity for us to teach our children from a young age, not only to fast, but also to have a relationship with the father of confession. Because I don't have to decide as a parent how the children are going to fast. They can have a father of confession, they can go to him, and he can tell them how to fast. And then of course the parents have to abide by what is it that the father of confession has said. But you know, even we, we, we were talking about this topic uh, at the priest convention we had a couple weeks ago, and his eminence was talking with us, and he was saying there's nothing wrong with letting kids to start fasting everything from when they're six years old. Very young age, fasting all of the fasts, this is actually how uh, people learn to fast. Whatever kids learn to do from a young age, it becomes a second nature for them. So as they get older, it's something that they practice and it's easy. Of course, as adults, the things that we learn to do when we're older, it's harder for us to start something that we're not accustomed to. So that's why it's important for us to give our children this opportunity to fast even from a young age and to start confessing at a young age. Um, Second point, create a stable and peaceful environment for them, meaning the, the environment that I want my children to grow up in is one that is filled with stability. It's stable. Children become very stressed when they feel like the, the future is uncertain or they, they feel like there is conflict, right? It makes them very, very um, nervous. Um, you know, an example of this is the relationship between the father and the mother. You know, sometimes, of course, parents have conflicts with one another and that's normal. But the question is, is, how do we deal with our conflicts with one another? Do we deal with it in private, where the children cannot see, right? Or do we deal with it in front of them, where the children see and there's yelling and there's all kinds of fights that are in front of the children? This causes the children, when they see this, to feel insecure, because the home is the place of security. The parents are the figures of security in the lives of the children. And when they begin to feel like there is conflict, right, and that, that foundation of security that they have, is being rattled, is being shaken, and makes the children act out in various ways and makes them feel unsafe, 
okay? So one of the responsibilities as parents that we have toward our children is as much as we can to create a peaceful environment for them. Now, there's definitely going to be things that are out of our control, right? Like um, child goes to school, has some conflict with someone, one of the other kids at school, comes back crying, um, has some issues or whatnot. We can't completely shield our kids, and definitely that's not even a good thing for us to shield our kids from everything. They have to learn to deal with adversity in many ways. But as long as the home is a place of safety, right? That When the home is a place of safety, even if they were to leave for a time, they will want to come back again, right? If you look at the example of the prodigal son, the prodigal son wasted his life, and he took all of his father's resources. He was very immature and unwise in his actions. He left the house and was very disrespectful to his father, and he hit rock bottom with what it is that he did. But even then, in that place, in his mind, he thought, I can go back to my father's house, right? Because the father's house was a still, in his mind, a place of love, a place of security, a place of care, that if I go back to my father, he is not going to reject me. He's going to still accept me because he knew that that was the relationship that he had. And he realized that the problem was with him, not the problem with his father. So creating this stable environment is very important for our children, even if they were to go away, even if they were to leave, right? That they can still feel like I can come back and, um, and find love in my father's house. Giving them time and attention. Again, sometimes this is we are dividing our time between more than one goal. Yes, we spoke about the goal of I need to provide for my children, I need to work, I need to earn money, I need to be able to buy the things that they need, have a house, uh, all the other expenses that we have to do, and so on, right? That's one way that maybe I spend my time. Another way I like to spend my time is maybe with hobbies. There's certain things I enjoy doing. How do I deal with stress? How do I unwind? Well, there's certain activities, certain hobbies that I have that when I do them, I feel relaxed and happy. So that's one thing that I, that I want to do. But we should not forget that one of the primary uh, like uh, responsibilities as parents that we have is the, the well-being of our children, the emotional and spiritual well-being of our children. Sometimes we focus so much on the financial well-being, on the physical well-being, which of course is important, that we invest all of our time in, let's say, working. I'm going to work seven days a week. I'm going to work 60 hours a week. I'm going to, you know, why? Because I feel like I need to. Okay, well, maybe in some cases that's true. Maybe in some cases the, the parent has to work that often because otherwise they won't be able to provide for their family. But sometimes it's not necessary. It's a person who is investing their time in work because they feel like this is going to bring them success. They feel like this is going to bring them more money and get them the things that they want. But in the meantime, the children are being neglected. Maybe not physically neglected. They have the clothes, they have the food, they have you know all the activities that they want to be part of. They have all those things. But I'm not investing in my children in an emotional sense, meaning I'm not present. And I'm not there to have you know deep conversations with them. They don't see that I'm very interested in their life. You know, it's like I'm busy with all these things. Here, take the iPad, go watch whatever it is you're going to watch. That way you're happy and I'm happy, right? Maybe it seems like in the moment that this is solving the problem. Right, the problem that my kids are bored and I am busy, take this, be occupied with it, and that gives me time to do what I need. You do what you want because that's what you want. You want to use electronics and so on. And so in the end, we're both happy. Right? Maybe that's the what we think in that moment. But what we are doing in order to gain that immediate, you know, solution to the problem, 
is we are we are compromising something else that's far more important which is the relationship that we develop between the the parents and the children the the relationship of trust the communication the the the, the deeper investment in each other that maybe over time we are neglecting because it's all just about well how do i deal with the fact that you know you, you you're bored and i'm busy in this moment right and so the part of creating the stable environment is giving them our time and attention even when the things that we're doing with them don't really seem like they're necessarily very important maybe the kind of games that the kids want to play just spending time doing something that in our mind is really not that useful but for them it's very important for them it helps build a bond with the parents and make them see how much we really care about them because we're willing to invest in them Keep in mind that children don't understand, right? When we tell them, oh, well, I have to go to work for 60 hours and I'm doing it for you. Yeah, maybe that's the case. Maybe that is the case and maybe that is why I'm doing it. But children don't comprehend that. All children see is my parents aren't at home. My parents are not with me. They're off doing something. They say that it's important, but they're not with me, right? So they feel this kind of separation and sadness. And after a while, it starts to become like an expectation. I have just now expect that my parents are not around. I expect that I'm being babysat by the iPad. I expect that they're always busy doing something. Even if it, there is a good reason for it, after a while of this repeated, they, like the children, they stop having like a sense of connection with the parents and then our, our relationship just becomes about rules, right? I set the rules, you follow the rules. And, and, and my idea of parenting is I have to enforce the rules. I have to make sure that, that my kids are following the rules that I set. And as long as they're following the rules, then I feel like I'm a good parent. But this again, right, it doesn't, it doesn't, it, 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 it ignores the amount of personal time that I need to invest in them, not just so they follow the rules, because the goal in the end is not for them to follow the rules. The goal is for them to have a relationship of love with me as a parent. And if they love me, they will follow the rules. Right? There is a difference between a child who follows the rules out of fear, follows the rules because the, the house is very strict, right? or the child who the parents don't even pay attention to them, they do whatever they want, they don't have any rules at all, right? versus a relationship of love where the child loves the parents and wants to do the right thing in order to please the parents. And, and this is the same type of relationship that we should have with God. And this is why the relationship between the children and the parents is like an analogy to the relationship between us and God. We should not obey God out of fear. We should obey him out of love. Meaning, I love God, and because I love him, I want him to be pleased. I want his favor. I want to do what, what pleases him, because that makes me happy when he is pleased. The same is true with the children and the parents. If the children love the parents, then yes, they want to follow the rules because this is what their parents, what delights their parents. And this goes back to the idea of honoring, honoring the parents. Maybe a child who obeys out of fear, maybe it looks like from the outside that they're an obedient child. Maybe it looks like they have been raised in the right way. But the moment that that child has freedom to where they don't have to be compelled to do that anymore, you will see that actually they're very rebellious. You will see that they're going to leave completely. They don't want anything to do with this anymore because the burden of this household that is just very, very strict is something that I've never enjoyed. I've never liked it. I don't have a good connection with the parents and all I'm doing is just following the rules because I'm afraid of what will happen if I don't. And so the moment that I have the freedom to leave, I will leave, right? So it's very important for us as parents 
part of our responsibility to our children is not just to feed them. It's to invest in their life, to invest emotionally, to invest spiritually, right? To be there with them, to help them with their homework, to, to be present for them, even to do the things that I myself have no real interest in doing for their sake, and then they will experience and feel the love that we have for them. Another responsibility parents have is to be patient with them as they grow and mature, meaning we shouldn't set unrealistic expectations for our kids, right? Sometimes because we want our kids to learn and to grow, we set very high expectations, expectations that are beyond their ability for their age in order to give. Like for instance, if we tell the child you have to stay completely quiet for one hour and you don't move and you don't talk, okay, well maybe this is unrealistic for the age of this child. Maybe they can't do that. This is something that, that is beyond their ability as a child to do. Maybe we want them to excel so much in school and we want them to have these amazing grades, but maybe this particular child, this isn't his strength. This subject is not his strength. It's not something that, it's not out of a lack of effort, but it's a lack of his ability. God didn't give him the ability to be able to do this subject very well. And some children, their, their, their strengths are something completely different, right? So when we place an undue burden on our children and we are impatient with them and how they are growing and how they are succeeding, right? Maybe we think that we are helping them because we want them to challenge themselves, which we should, right? But we also have to balance that with what is realistic for their ability, for their age, right? In order to not break their spirit, right? Encouraging them for the things that they are able to do, encouraging them to work harder, yes, but not to be so impatient with them and make them feel like they are failures, right? Because they haven't yet achieved what I think they should achieve. In Ephesians chapter 6, it speaks about the relationship of different members of the family. It speaks about wives submitting to the husbands. It speaks about husbands loving the wives. It speaks about children obeying the parents. But it also says to the parents, do not provoke them, meaning the children, do not provoke them to wrath. Meaning don't be so harsh on them to, 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 by, to provoke them to anger. Okay, what does it mean? Does that mean that we shouldn't be strict with our children? Does that mean that we should just give them whatever they want? No, that's not what it means. But again, it means don't place an undue burden on them that they cannot carry, something that they cannot carry. It's too heavy for them. And when we are we're disciplining them, you know, sometimes, of course, as parents, we, we get angry, right, when the children disobey. But our anger should be a constructive anger and not a destructive one. Right? What is the difference? Anger is actually not a sin, right? Anger is not a sin. Anger is necessary in order for us to correct something that is unjust or wrong. So for instance, um, imagine a world without anger, right? If there was no anger in the world, then there would be no trying to correct an injustice, right? If there was no anger in the world, then there would be no prisons. There would be no consequences for sin or crime if there was no anger. The reason we make consequences for things is because we have anger. This is wrong, and I feel like like I feel upset toward it, and we need to correct it. Okay, the thing that makes anger to be a sin is my unhealthy reaction to that feeling, right? When I see that there is something that needs to be corrected, how do I correct it? Do I correct it in a constructive way, or do I correct it in a destructive way? You know, Moses, when he was coming down the mountain after receiving the Ten Commandments from God, because we're talking about the Ten Commandments, right? What did he do? He saw the people doing what? They were sacrificing to a golden calf that they had made. 
And so Moses was indignant. He was angry at what the people were doing. So what did he do? He broke the tablets. He took the tablets. He threw them on the ground. So on the one hand, you can say that Moses' anger was justified in the sense that, you know, I left you for 40 days, and after this God whom we worship led you out of Egypt as slaves here and gave you all these blessings and is promising you this to lead you to the promised land, and I'm gone for just 40 days and you're already worshiping another God? Of course, it's something that would have made him angry. But the way that he re responded in his anger was an unhealthy anger. Breaking the Ten Commandments didn't solve anything. Breaking the Ten Commandments did not make the people change. It didn't instruct them. It didn't help them. All it did was make God have to make new tablets, right? So the anger itself is not the issue, but the way that we respond in our anger. So when I'm wanting to discipline my child, it's good that we feel anger. When, when the child is doing something wrong, it means that I care about raising him. It means that I care about teaching him what to do, right? And that's my responsibility as a parent. But when I feel that anger, it is then unhealthy for me to become enraged, for me to break things, for me to yell, for me to be physically violent. For Those things are unhealthy because they're not actually solving the problem. And as I said before, maybe we think that because my child becomes afraid of me and they, they fall into line and they start doing what I tell them to do because they're afraid of my outburst and my reaction, maybe we think that I'm actually raising them in the right way because now they are obeying right? Yeah, maybe they are obeying, but while they are obeying, they are getting further and further from me. They are getting more distant from me. The connection between me and them is breaking because they are not seeing me act in love toward them. They're seeing me act in violence. They're seeing me act in, 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 in aggression, right, toward them. So if I take that same anger and instead I deal with it in a healthy way, I can sit with them. I can teach them. I can be calm. And yes, there can be consequences. I can give you a consequence. I can, I can ground you. I can do all these things. I'm not saying that we don't do things that, that our kids are not going to like. No, we, we, we need to make them feel the consequences. But all those things have a constructive purpose as opposed to just undirected anger, undirected kind of rage that, that has no purpose, right? So this is what it means when it says do not provoke them to wrath. Let your anger be directed in a positive, godly way, in a way that actually benefits them, not in to just satisfy my own rage, to sacrifice my, to, to, to satisfy my uncontrolled anger. Because really at that point, what we are doing is we are not disciplining our children. We are just acting out of the anger we feel that we don't know how to control, right? And this isn't just about raising children. It could be about anything. I'm, I'm at work and I'm upset about something that happened. And so I find myself yelling or screaming or cursing or punching or doing something. What is that? It means that I don't have self-control. I'm not able to control myself, and so I'm reacting in a way that, again, is not beneficial or helpful. There's nothing about that that's going to solve any problem, okay? So do not provoke them to wrath. Last is to be a good role model, okay? Be a good role model, meaning what? Meaning that they imitate me. How do they know how is it that a person should live? They're only growing up in my household, and for years, our children really, they don't, like the person they see the most in their life is the parents, right? How do they know how a person should live? They look at the parents. What the parents do, the children will do. So if the parents see me being a good role model, they see me modeling all of the things that I want them to live by, then they will also do those things. And as I said about the fasting from a young age, it will become natural. 
right? And this is what we want. We want righteousness and goodness to be natural for our children. We don't want it to be something foreign. We don't want them to learn the bad habits and then try to correct the bad habits by learning good habits later in life. We want them to learn the good habits from day one, right? So we model for them those good habits. And I'm not saying that we do them just as a show, right? I'm not saying that, well, in front of our kids, we're going to act a certain way because we want them to learn good habits because actually they see through that. They see through that very easily that it's fake, okay? No, what we are saying is let my children be the reason why that I change my life. You know, if I am not walking in the right direction, if I'm, if I'm you know, um, falling into various things, things that I should change in my life, let my children be the reason why I choose to do so, right? As God is giving me a gift, he's saying, if you have not yet up until now been able to break the bonds of sin in your life, here is a very good reason to start. Here's a very good reason to learn. Here's a very good reason to start confessing. Here's a very good reason to start praying because I want this to be a genuine thing. Like God has placed on me this responsibility to raise this person in the fear of God. How can I raise them in the fear of God when I myself am struggling to fear God, right? So, so this is how, in some sense, this is like a symbiotic relationship. Clearly, the parents are a blessing for the children because without the parents, the children could not survive, right? But also the children are a blessing for the parents. They motivate us to do good. They motivate us to learn how to be patient, how to love unconditionally, how to forgive. And in this, we learn also the way that God sees us. Why is it that God said about himself that he is a father, right? And we are his children because that relationship between father and child, between parent and child is the same relationship that he has with us. And the more we see it, when you see how for instance, your child can make all kinds of mistakes and yet you still love them, right? They can do horrible things and yet you still love them, right? It shows how much God loves us even when all of the bad things that we do and how he has mercy on us. So we need to be a good role model. We need to be Christ-like um, for their sakes. What are some of the limits? This is the last point here about the fifth commandment. What are some limits that we place on honoring parents? We spoke a little bit about this before. What does it mean to honor parents, especially as an adult, right? Because as an adult, I have my own independent life. I have my own, make my own choices for myself. It's not my, my relationship with my parents is not going to be the same as when I was, you know, uh, a middle schooler or an elementary kid, right? It's not the same. What are some of the limits? The first is our love for our parents should not be stronger than our love for God. Even when the Lord is speaking, he says, anyone who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. It means what? That even our parents should not be uh, the obstacle between us and God. Should not be the obstacle. We see an example of this when King Saul wanted to kill David. Jonathan, his son, the son of Saul, was very close friends with David. And he knew that what his father was doing was unjust, was, was, was wicked, the fact that he wanted to kill David. So even though his father is, is, t is telling him that he wants to kill David, right, Jonathan opposed him. Jonathan stood up for him and he said, no, I, I will not do this. I, I will not seek to kill him. And he protected David and he helped him to escape, right? So in a sense here, we see that Jonathan, the son, is disobeying his father, right? But this was, this was justified, was justified because it was unlawful for, the, for, for King Saul to kill King David. So this is an example of a limit 
of honoring parents. If our parents are asking us to do something that is unlawful, unrighteous, that, that is a bad influence on us, then we can stand and say, no, I, I, I'm not going to do this, right? Even though I care about you and even though I want to please you, but I feel like this is, this is, this is not the right thing. I can't, I can't do this in the eyes of God. I can't do this. Um, another limit of obedience and honoring the parents is it is not unconditional, right? It is not an unconditional obedience. For instance, um, when Bathsheba, who was the mother of King Solomon, when she came to King Solomon, she wanted him to give this woman, her name was Abishag the Sholomite, she wanted to give him as a wife for the brother of, of Solomon, whose name was Adonijah. So she's coming to King Solomon, he's king, saying, I want you to give this woman as a wife to your brother, Adonijah. Um, king Solomon knew that there was something behind this, right? His brother, Adonijah, wanted to be the king, and he wanted to use this as, a, as an opportunity for him to gain prominence and gain the throne. Bathsheba didn't know this. She didn't understand it. She thought this was an innocent request. So she's coming to King Solomon and asking him, can you please grant this, this request for me? And he said, no, I will not grant this request. So here is another example where uh, his mother is telling him to do something, right? But if we want to see how he honored her, when she came into the throne room, he had a special throne set up for her next to his so that she would sit on a throne. And actually, he bowed down to her when she came in, right? So he gave her honor, right? He, 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 he was submitting to her, but that submission also was with discernment, right? In this case, she was asking him to do something, maybe not even understanding its implication, um, that was going to be harmful to him, okay? So he said, no, I can't, I can't do this. So one of the limits of honoring parents is it's not unconditional. We take into account the desire of the parents. And if there's a way we can fulfill the desire, right, we try to do so, even if it means personal sacrifice. But that doesn't mean that everything that our parents say, 100% of it has to be done, okay? Now, again, I'm talking about for adult children, okay? I'm not talking about for the young children. Also, another limit of honoring the parents is there should be healthy boundaries between married children and their parents and in-laws, okay? Meaning that when a person leaves the home of their parents and they go and they start their own household and they have a, their own husband or wife and they have their own children, now you have a separate family unit, okay? And that separate family unit has to make decisions for itself. You know, when God was speaking about marriage and he instituted marriage, he says, what a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So that unity between the husband and the wife to become one flesh is the most intimate of relationships. And that causes the, now this uh, new family, right, that has to make decisions for themselves. And what does happen sometimes is parents who sometimes maybe have an unhealthy attachment to their children will want to interfere, right? They will want to influence. They will come and say, well, um, you know, let's say uh, a son was living with his parents. He goes and gets married. They will come to him after he's married and say, I want you to come and take vacations with us. I want you to put your kids in these schools. I want you to live in a certain place. I want you to take a certain job. And because maybe the son growing up in the household was very influenced by these parents, of course, and he has yet to develop kind of his own separate identity, separate from them, he finds himself very easily influenced by them and just going along with whatever it is that they say. This, of course, causes a problem to who? The wife, right? Because she does not want 
this influence? Why are you listening to your parents? Why are you like, having them decide for us what is all these things that we're going to do? And so it becomes a point of conflict. Now, again, this is a, a transition, right? This is a transition. When, when someone like gets married, it's going to be a transition process to go from one to the other. But the idea is, it is not honoring the parents to have this unconditional, yes, well, you want me to live in this city? Of course, I'll live in the whatever city you tell me. No, that's not healthy, right? That's not, that's not what we mean when we say honoring parents. So honoring the parents is about taking into consideration as adults, taking into consideration their desires, their needs, making that an important factor in making decisions. But in the end, the decisions that I make are my own. But even when I am not following what my parents are desiring, I still treat them with gentleness, with honor, with respect, with patience. I don't blow up in their face. I don't yell at them. I don't curse them, right? I, I treat them respectfully, even while I'm disagreeing with what they said, even while I'm rejecting what is it they want me to do? I still deal with them with kindness and goodness. Okay, so this is a um, th this is uh, just kind of uh, the last thing I wanted to mention about this commandment, the uh, the fifth commandment. Any questions or comments before we move on to the next? Okay, the sixth commandment is very simple: you shall not murder. Okay, you shall not murder. And I wanted to distinguish between murder and killing because we are going to see that there is a difference between the two. Some translations actually of the Bible, they say you shall not kill. Okay, But the, the problem with this is that God asked the people to kill. Actually, the, the consequence, the punishment for breaking any of the commandments that we've said so far has been what? To be killed. Okay, God told the people when they entered into the promised land, I want you to kill all of the people who are already there, okay? So we, we start to have uh, a problem. How is it that God is telling us not to kill, but then at the same time he's telling us to kill, okay? So I'll, I want to speak about what we're going to call permissible killing, okay? Because there is such a thing as permissible killing in the eyes of God, and I'll show you different examples of it before we get to, probably next time, what are the impermissible, okay? The impermissible killing. So God said you shall not murder, and yet he permits and even requires killing in certain cases. Killing was a punishment for many sins. Whoever violated any of the first seven commandments was punished by being put to death. Okay? Punished by being put to death. For example, someone violating the seventh commandment that says you shall not commit adultery was to be punished for the scripture, uh, was to be punished for the scripture necessitates that both adulterer and adulteress shall be put to death. Okay? People who commit adultery, both of them will be put to death. This is why in the New Testament, when there was a woman who was caught in the act of adultery, they brought her out before Christ, and they were getting ready to stone her, and they, um, they wanted to trap Christ, and they asked him, so what should we do? Should we stone her or not? Because they wanted to trap him. Because they knew that the, the law said that she should be killed. Okay, But the Lord wanted to have mercy on her. The grace that we receive in the New Testament is that we do not receive the due punishment of our sin. Okay? It is, it, is, it is not that the law has changed. It is that the Lord is granting us mercy so we do not receive the due punishment of our sin. This is why when the Lord came, right, and they had this woman in front of him, and they said to him, should we stone her? 
What was the Lord's response? What did he say? The, the one who is without sin, let him throw the first stone. So notice what he said was is he didn't cancel the law. He didn't say, no, don't stone her, because actually this was the law. But he made the people realize that they are themselves are worthy to be stoned. Like all of us are worthy to be stoned. All of us have broken the law. And this was the, 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 the real reason for the incarnation is to say all of you have broken the law. All of you deserve death, eternal death. But I have come to spare you from this consequence. I have come to take the death on myself, like symbolically that Christ is the one who would be stoned instead of any of us so that we would be spared, right? So we see in the New Testament the law of grace, okay? But what was it before? What was it in the Old Testament? Everything, the consequence was death. The scribes and the Pharisees were talking with our Lord um, uh, about this command when they mentioned the woman who had been found committing adultery and said, now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, right? Because this is, this, is, this is the conversation I was mentioning. This is what they said. He says, the law says that this woman should be stoned. Moreover, anyone violating the sixth commandment that says you shall not murder was to be put to death whether he acted with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery or struck a man so that he dies. So according to this law, if a person premeditated a murder or a person involuntarily killed someone, okay, so that he died, this person also should be put to death. He was also to be put to, to death for indirectly killing someone. It says, but if the ox, so it's talking about like if, if someone owns an ox and that ox is like wild, it's, it's not controllable. And it so happened that that ox killed somebody, okay? It says, if the ox tended to thrust with its horns in times past and has been made known to its owner and he has not kept it confined so that it has killed a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner shall also be put to death. So he's saying, if the owner knew that the ox is wild and violent and has a dis you know, predispensation to hurt someone and that owner of the ox did not put the ox to confine the ox, to keep it pent up, and then that ox kills someone, then the ox is stoned, and the owner of the ox is stoned because he should have known better, right? He should have known. People also violating the fifth commandment were put to death. And he who strikes his father or mother shall surely be put to death. This is the, the one we just mentioned, the honoring your father and mother. If a person strikes the father or mother, he shall be put to death. He who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, and shall surely be put to death. And he who curses his father or his mother shall also be put to death. So just cursing, cursing the father or the mother, breaking of the fifth commandment, the result is put to death. Um, the fourth commandment, which is keeping the Sabbath day holy. If a person were to break the Sabbath and work on the Sabbath, they should be put to death. You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is, uh, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death, for whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Okay, so again, the, 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 the command is put to death. Violating the third commandment, which is blaspheming the name of God. Also, consequences to be put to death. And whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, and the stranger as well as him who was born in the land. When he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. 
the first and second commandments regarding worshiping God and creating idols, graven images. This is what he said about idol worshipers. He who sacrifices to any God except to the Lord alone or only, he shall be utterly destroyed. And even in the case of a whole city, all its inhabitants were to be put to death. In Deuteronomy 13, and you shall gather all its plunder into the middle of the street and completely burn with fire the city and all its plunder for the Lord your God. It shall be a heap forever. It shall not be built again. Also, those people who are practicing sorcery, they were also to be put to death. It says, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. People who were kidnappers, he who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. So this introduction, um, as far as uh, <laughs> putting people to death, <laughs> I just wanted to make it clear, okay? What is it that God is saying when he says, do not murder? Okay. Do not murder means do not take it upon yourself out of your anger, out of your desire to to out of your hatred to murder someone, to kill someone. That is not the reason to kill. But when it comes to holiness of breaking the commandments of God, actually death was the consequence for everything. Okay? So when we say do not kill, that does not mean that God is against killing. Okay? It does not mean that. It means that we are not to take it upon ourselves to decide who to kill. Okay? Because God is the one who gave life to all people, and God is the one who also chooses when to take that life. You can think about every person, even a person who dies of natural causes. Couldn't God have, have made that person to live longer? Couldn't God have allowed that person to live longer? He didn't. Because in the hand of God is the life of each person, when they are born and when they die, right? And each person, right, cannot control that. God is the one. So here when God says, I choose that a certain person dies because of this, what would be different between that and a person dying in an earthquake? There's really no difference. God allowed a person to die in an earthquake. We don't, you know, we don't say, well, no, it was wrong for that to happen. No, I mean, it, it happened. It's something we can't control, right? So, so I just want to emphasize about this. There is such a thing as permissible killing, right? And we're going to talk more about that and exactly what is this command and what is it telling us to do um, next time, God willing. Any final questions? Yes. So we'll talk more about that. But the, the church is not against capital punishment. Actually, the, actually, I think it was in the Pauline epistle today in Romans chapter 13. He's saying, like, like God grants the authority to the, like the governing authorities. He says what? They do not bear the sword in vain, right? Meaning God has give granted to them the, 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 the authority to execute justice on the wrongdoers. So the church, we understand that to mean that if the government decides that it, it's going to punish a person with death, then we accept it as an authority that comes from God. Now, that doesn't mean that the government can be unjust and apply that unfairly, right? So, And we're not always saying that the government is just in the way it applies that. But the, 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 the idea that the government has the authority to put to death, yes, we accept that. Yeah. Okay, we can pray.
In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask for your blessing, and we ask, O Lord, that you always be with us and remember us in this great fast. Help us, O Lord, to be focused on you and not to be distracted by the things that are in the world, and grant us your peace in all things. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God, the Father, the grace to the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the community, the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.